Temperatures are below freezing for more than half in the United States, and more than a million currently do not have power. The lead starts right now. An historic and sadly deadly winter storm. Hundreds of thousands without power, more than 4,000 flights canceled. Winds so treacherous, the airport in Buffalo, New York, had to shut down. CNN is live with the havoc being wreaked nationwide. And the January 6th committee out with its final report spelling out why Donald Trump, in their view, was the one solely responsible for the riot and should be disqualified from holding office ever again. A member of the committee will join us coming up, plus new transcripts from the committee. Why star witness Cassidy Hutchinson later said she was disappointed and disgusted with her first round of testimony under oath. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with the national lead today in this nightmare weather scenario right before Christmas. Crippling conditions stretching coast to coast with snow and ice in cities such as Seattle and Portland, Oregon, to the massive bomb cyclone system now moving east. Nearly 180 million people in the U.S. are in areas with temperatures below freezing. 70 million are in areas below zero. This system is so powerful, meteorologists say its atmospheric pressure is equivalent to a Category 2 hurricane, which means forceful wind gusts and even coastal flooding. Along the Great Lakes today, the mayor of Buffalo, New York, banned all driving. This is what it looked like around 8.30 this morning in Buffalo. Just two hours later, the same neighborhood and roads surrounding it covered in snow. The system has sadly also been deadly. The weather is to blame for at least four deaths in Kansas and Kentucky that we know about as of now. Three were involved in car crashes. Police say a man in Louisville, Kentucky, died after being exposed to the elements. From Denver to Atlanta to Chicago and beyond, CNN is covering this weather disaster coast to coast. CNN's Omar Jimenez starts us off with the havoc on the day before Christmas Eve. From record snowfall in the Midwest to dangerous road conditions in the Deep South. Now, more than half of the country is under massive winter storm and wind chill alerts. A blizzard whips through Buffalo. Storms ravage Rhode Island. Wichita experiencing a whiteout. It's really hard to find where the worst weather is. It's just about everywhere from coast to coast. The extreme weather blamed on what's being called a bomb cyclone across nearly every state from the Rocky Mountains to the south. Some temperatures free-falling, a record 30 to 47 degrees within a matter of hours on Thursday. In Denver, Colorado, below zero temperatures prompted a wind chill warning. It's still not safe for people to be outdoors. Even Texas is experiencing a deep freeze. And as Arctic temperatures hit near the U.S. border with Mexico... Many migrants are now facing the harsh elements without shelter. Almost one and a half million Americans are now braving the cold without power, some now stocking up to ride out the storm. The dangerous combination of ice and wind creating extreme road hazards and major disruptions to holiday travel. I know we we all want to get to to, uh, our loved ones for the holidays, but please, please pay close attention to what local authorities are saying. And if they're saying it's not safe to drive, it's not safe to drive. And at many airports, transportation authorities are saying it may not be safe to fly either. More than 7,000 flights have been canceled today. 
It's been changing by the minute. It's just part, it was going to be a long trip, and now it's just part of the adventure to get there. Snow even disrupting travel in Seattle and creating a domino effect around the country. The frigid temperatures are expected to last throughout the holiday weekend, breaking 40-year records in the Midwest and the Plains. For millions of Americans, this may be the coldest Christmas they have ever experienced. And here at O'Hare Airport, this is one of the world's busiest. We've seen hundreds of delays alone tied into the more than 4,700 delays we've seen across the country. Over in Buffalo, you touched on it a little bit, Jake, before coming to me. That airport has canceled all flights for this evening. Over there, they are potentially going to see wind gusts up to 75 miles per hour is part of what's being forecast over there. That's hurricane force winds at threshold 74 miles per hour. So you can see the danger there on top of the massive amounts of snow they are clearly getting and the very little visibility that we have seen there over the course of today. And all of it unfolding just two days before Christmas, Jake. Yeah. I'm Mar Jimenez. Thank you so much. In Georgia, the story has been Trying to keep the electricity going. Cities not used to this kind of deep freeze have been dealing with power outages. CNN meteorologist Derek Van Dam is in Atlanta. Derek, the coldest air from this system is yet to come for the area where you are. Yeah, and, and the problem with that, Jake, is that there are going to be multiple cities across the south, Birmingham to Jackson to Atlanta, that will be below freezing for more than 48 hours. So uh, if you do lose electricity, of course, that means you can't heat your home in many instances. You've got the potential for bursting pipes. It gets to my graphics because I want you to see how cold it dropped in Atlanta. Just in a matter of eight hours, it dropped 35 degrees. Just an incredible incredible temperature drop with this emperor from the north that moved in the cold arctic blast you can see the seven day forecast we stay below freezing through christmas we are on the verge of the coldest christmas eve ever here in atlanta 1.2 million customers without power because of this arctic outbreak across the eastern u.s just incredible look at memphis 13 degrees there the wind chill that's what it feels like on your exposed skin negative two the electrical companies there and the mayor urging residents to please, please turn off all unnecessary appliances, uh, conserve electricity because the, uh, the, the grid is being uh, overworked with this uh, outbreak that has moved through. This is the location of the cold front now moving across the east coast. Uh, Boston, you're next. You're in rain right now, but the front will move through. You'll get a wallop of snow. Then it comes to an end. Maybe the skies go clear. If you get some sunshine tomorrow, it will be completely deceiving. I want to take you to Buffalo because this is ground zero for the heaviest snow from this storm system, up to three feet downwind from Lake Erie as well as Lake Ontario. This is where we're going to see the snow measured in feet going forward. And the winds, we cannot talk about this, uh, this weather forecast without what is happening with the winds. Gusting near Category 1 hurricane strength. That is incredible. That's why there's wind alerts, wind warnings in place all along the eastern seaboard. Those aren't typos, Jake. We're expecting gusts in Buffalo, where our Polo Sandoval is, upwards of 70 miles an hour. <laughs> Unbelievable. Check. Derek Van Dam, thanks so much. Stay warm. In Denver, the city opened more warming centers because of the chill. CNN's Lucy Kafanov is in Denver. With the ever-so-slight warm-up there, Lucy, temperatures went from the negative 20s to at least the teens, but it's still dangerously cold where you are, even for a city like Denver. 
That's right, Jake, and I'm actually regretting my decision to leave my gloves in the car. It's still pretty cold here, but you can see behind me, things are slowly returning back to normal. People are out in the street again. There's a much braver gentleman without a warm coat behind me. The snow has largely been plowed. The snow wing has stopped. That windshield still making things painful, but we are now actually anticipating a Christmas warm-up after this this brutal brutal uh, cold front we do still expect a wind chill advisory tonight for the far northeastern plains but again the worst is very much over thursday's bitter temperatures nearly set the record for the coldest day uh, in denver's history since records were kept uh, it was a dramatic 75 degree temperature swing from a high of 50 degrees on wednesday when i was out on the streets to minus 24 on thursday morning the wind chill making it feel even more more painful, even more dangerous frostbite, an actual concern that has lessened somewhat. You mentioned the warming centers that have been open. We did have the Denver Coliseum, this massive facility, uh, open as a 24-hour warming center, but there was so much demand yesterday evening that the city opened up two more facilities to deal with the overflow, and the decision's been made to keep them open through tonight into Saturday, one more night to give people a warm place to stay. Uh, again, the worst is largely over. Uh, we are still seeing some consequences from the travel delays. There were 600 flights canceled on Thursday, 300 canceled out of Denver this morning. Uh, but people are slowly uh, being able to make their travel plans. And again, a warm up for Christmas. We could be seeing a high of 54 degrees. I know that's cold comfort for your neck of the woods as that Arctic front pummels the East Coast. Jake. That's right, Lucy Kavanaugh, go get your gloves. Thanks so much. The other big story this hour. The final report from the January 6th committee and the stunning details not to be buried over the holidays and the brand new witness transcripts coming along with it. Plus, President Volodymyr Zelensky is back in Ukraine. What he's telling his own country today after his bold and daring trip to the U.S. Stay with us. Turning to our politics lead after wrapping up its year and a half long investigation, the House committee probing the deadly January 6th Capitol attack has finally released its final report, and it could not be more direct in laying out exactly whom they believe is to blame for the assault on American democracy. Quote, the central cause of January 6th was one man, former President Donald Trump, whom many others followed. None of the events of January 6th would have happened without him. Unquote. That conclusion leading the committee to recommend that Trump never be allowed to hold political office ever again. The 845-page report is based on more than 1,000 interviews, plus countless emails, texts, phone records, which lay out the lengths Trump and his inner circle went through in their plot to overturn the results of the 2020 election. And as CNN's Jessica Schneider reports for us now, the reports reveal there were at least 200 attempts from Trump and his allies to pressure state officials to change election results in several key states based on delusional election lies. And we fight... We fight like hell. The January 6th committee leaving no doubt that former President Donald Trump was the one singularly responsible for the attack on the Capitol. The 845-page report saying none of the events of January 6th would have happened without him, drawing a clear line between Trump's election denials and the violence that unfolded that day. After sending four criminal referrals for Trump to the Justice Department, the committee is also recommending that he's barred from holding government office ever again, zeroing in on a section of the Constitution that says any officeholder who engaged in an insurrection can be disqualified from serving again. No man who would behave that way at that moment in time 
can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. He is unfit for any office. House investigators say Trump and his inner circle engaged in at least 200 attempts to pressure state officials to overturn the results, including this call with Georgia's Secretary of State. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. The report also highlighting other key players in the alleged conspiracy, identifying pro-Trump lawyer Kenneth Cheesebro as the architect of the fake electors plot, and a 23-minute call between Trump and attorney John Eastman as the genesis of the pressure campaign against Vice President Mike Pence. If Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. This leading the committee to recommend an overhaul of the 1887 Electoral Count Act that's close to becoming a reality as the House and Senate have each passed their own reform bills. But back in 2020, Trump did not agree with every outlandish theory his team presented. The massive influence of communist money through Venezuela, Cuba, and likely China in the interference with our elections here in the United States. When Sidney Powell repeated these conspiracy theories in a phone call to Trump, White House aide Hope Hicks told the committee the president muted his speakerphone and laughed at Powell, telling the others in the room, this does sound crazy, doesn't it? The committee also laying out Trump's failure to act for 187 minutes during the riot, writing President Trump did not contact a single top national security official during the day. Mr. President! Trump responding to the report, calling it a witch hunt, and today he is still falsely claiming he won the 2020 election. And of course, now the committee's work is officially wrapped up, but we will see more in the coming days. The committee says it plans to release even more transcripts from some of their 1,000-plus witness interviews. And Jake, then we could see things really ramp up with the criminal investigations. We've got the one in Fulton County, Georgia. The DA there has really been ramping up her probe into election interference. And then, of course, the special counsel just about one month in, and he has issued a flurry of subpoenas in recent days. All right. Jessica Snyder, thanks so much. Trump is already lashing out at the committee and Democrats on his truth social platform, calling the bipartisan panel that interviewed mostly Republican officials, quote, highly partisan, and repeating his unfounded and baseless fraud claims about the 2020 election. CNN's Kristen Holmes following all of that for us. Kristen, is Donald Trump taking this seriously at all? Are, are the people around him? Well, he certainly is taking this seriously, and they are as well. And I do want to note that just about two minutes ago, Trump put out a video response to the January 6th committee report. Uh, It was very similar to that social media post, but he went on to talk about how the events were not an insurrection on January 6th. They were a process that got out of control, something we've heard before, but... Again, after the report release, it is important to say again that he believes that this was just a protest that got out of control. And he talked about how no one is talking about why this happened, that corrupt election. Once again, we don't have any proof. It has never been proven that there was any evidence of widespread fraud in the 2020 election. So clearly holding on to a lot of those old grievances and once again, falsely blaming Nancy Pelosi for the events on the Capitol, which the report clearly laid out was not the case involving the National Guard. So I do just want to give the highlights of that because he is responding now in a video as well. Now, when we talk about whether or not they are concerned, they are. 
but it might not be for the reason that one would think. When I'm talking to all of the people around Trump, they were told by their legal teams that everything coming out of this House committee was largely symbolic, that there were no real legal ramifications. But what they are concerned about is how this is going to impact the Department of Justice investigation that we just heard Jessica talking about. Is there a potential that this report caused a raise an interest by the Department of Justice in more crimes? Is there more information here than was previously known by the Department of Justice? What kind of doors will this open? And I will say, you know, about two weeks ago, I had lengthy conversations with a number of people who have been involved in the legal team and around the legal team advising him, who said that they were just starting to feel like they had a grip on how that investigation is going. They do not feel like that today. They did not feel like that last night. There is a lot of questions, a lot of unknowns as to how this will affect Trump and those around him. All right. The, uh, the report names several Trump allies and outlines the roles that they played in this scheme to overturn democracy, overturn the election. Are any of those allies commenting? Right now, most of the people who are actually named in the report are not commenting. But here's what I found to be really interesting. In the last 24 hours, I've heard from probably a dozen people who are still in Trump's orbit, some of them reaching out to me. And what the concern is, is not just the report, but it's actually the transcripts. What they are starting to see is names popping up in those transcripts, people who never knew that their names came up in this committee. People wondering if this means that they then are going to have to go to the Department of Justice. What does that mean for them? There is a lot of fear out there, again, about the seriousness of the special counsel investigation. And now people are learning that their names were coming up in this, in the committee, in these transcripts. And that is what I'm hearing from them. They are terrified. People are calling me denying events, telling me that this didn't happen. Of course, none of them are wanting to say it on the record. They just want to put it out there that it's not true. So we'll wait and see if that changes and how this really impacts the Department of Justice investigation. All right, Kristen Holmes, thanks so much. Let's bring in January 6th committee member and Democrat from California, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. Uh, Congresswoman, besides barring Trump from office, uh, your report has 10 other recommendations, including reforming the Electoral Count Act, which was passed as part of the, the spending bill just a few hours ago. There are other recommendations, though, where you call on Congress to act or amend laws I guess my question is, isn't it too late for that to happen, considering the new Republican-controlled House gets sworn in in 11 days? Well, we hope not. Uh, I would hope that uh, anybody who takes an oath to the Constitution would be interested in pursuing uh, remedies that would make the country safer. Uh, We're certainly disappointed that many of our Republican colleagues are still living uh, in kind of in a dream world, uh, but uh, I, I do think the Senate can can press this. And if we come up with something that's solid and bipartisan in the Senate, there's no reason to think that we can't get something done in the House as well. We just did with the Electoral Count Act, as you know. Yeah, you did because Nancy Pelosi is in charge of the, of the, of the House right now. But Kevin McCarthy will all in all likelihood be be uh, in charge of the House well, in, in, in a week and a half. And he voted to disenfranchise all of the people of Pennsylvania and Arizona right. based on those election lies after people died in the yep. insurrection. You're right. It was inexcusable. I just I guess I suffer from a persistent optimism, especially around the holidays. Uh, I, I don't have that affliction. The, uh, the report also makes clear uh, that Trump knew his plan was illegal. He knew his ultimate aim was obstructing an official proceeding of Congress. 
and he knew he needed a crowd to do his bidding. Um, do you think that conclusion should be the ultimate legacy of the committee? Well, I think the entire recommendations uh, speak to it. But clearly, uh, he assembled this mob. He weaponized uh, these extremists. They were armed, and he sent them off to prevent um, his loss, to, to stop the electoral count from happening. Uh, you know, there were multiple efforts to overturn the election, as the committee has shown in our report. And by the way, uh, Chairman, just uh, let us know that we are assembling all of the footnotes. We, we didn't print the, all of those up yet, so that will be coming uh, in the coming days. And there's a lot of interesting information uh, there. So, you know, we've assembled this information. We think it's pretty clear uh, what he did. Uh, it was illegal. It was un-American. And he is unfit to hold office in the future. There are a lot of what ifs in the report. One that caught my attention was from the commander of the D.C. National Guard who told your committee that he, quote, strongly considered deploying troops to the Capitol without approval from his supervisors. Do you think the National Guard, the U.S. Capitol Police and federal law enforcement agencies learned at all from what happened January 6, 2021? Or does there remain a lot of work to do? I think there were some big lessons learned there. As you know, uh, the procedures have been changed. Uh, for calling the guard. The uh, chief of police is now empowered to do that at the Capitol Police. Uh, we do need to streamline, I think, how the guard is deployed in the District of Columbia. That has not yet been accomplished, but it is something that should uh, grab our attention. Uh, we didn't find that there was uh, malicious intent, but certainly it was not, there was a lack of competence, I think, uh, at the Pentagon, miscommunications, people not understanding that the National Guard was ready to deploy. They had the plans all in place, and uh, the Secretary of the Army was trying to come up with a plan that, uh, you know, the people in charge had already done. So that was really a mess. And had uh, the Guard showed up earlier, you know, it's possible there would have been less injuries, um, but certainly it doesn't excuse what the ex-president did. He tried to overturn a lawful election. In the next Congress, you will in all likelihood need to work with, in order to achieve anything, because you'll be in the minority, work with people who either denied the election, voted against counting votes, voted against electoral votes, signed on to that crazy lawsuit from the Texas attorney general that was full of lies, uh, or even... Uh, individuals uh, who defied their subpoenas, uh, who right. refused to comply with congressional subpoenas. How are you going to do that? I'll be honest, uh, Jake, it's it's hard. Uh, you know, I hear, I hear some of these guys talking about, you know, the rule of law. And I think to myself, you voted to overturn the Constitution. So how can you even be saying this? Uh, but you know, I'm elected to go back and get something done for my constituents and for the country. And I intend to try and do that, even though many of these uh, Republican members uh, really have engaged in disgraceful and un-American activity. January 6th committee member and Democrat from California, Zoe Lofgren. Merry Christmas to you, Congresswoman. Thanks so much for joining us you and uh, hope to see you uh, more in the new year.
Hope so. Merry Christmas. The final report by the January 6th Select Committee is now a record for generations to come. We're going to talk with one of the nation's most prominent historians about the lessons to be learned. Stay with us. And we're back in the politics lead on this remarkable time in American history. The final report from the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, clearly laying blame for the attack firmly on Donald Trump, recommending he should never be allowed to hold office again. Let's discuss with presidential historian Douglas Brinkley, who is the author of the new book, Silent Spring Revolution. John F. Kennedy, Rachel Carson, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and the Great Environmental Awakening. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us, uh, Doug. Good to see you. So Trump is the very first former president to have a congressional committee refer them to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution. And now this official recommendation from this bipartisan committee that he be permanently banned from ever holding political office again. How extraordinary is this? It's stunning, Jake. You and I didn't grow up thinking this would ever be possible in the United States, a sitting president trying to throw a coup d'etat against our government. The January 6th commission uh, are really the stars in my mind of 2022. They stuck with it. They produced the uh, data and evidence that they needed to. They built their case in a methodical way. They unspooled it on the public in a smart way. And here we are at the holiday season. And this report comes out and to read it is to have your eyeballs pop out because Donald Trump is guilty is all hell. There's no question about it. And in my mind, you cannot have somebody be a sitting U.S. president who already tried to throw a coup d'etat over your country. That would be like letting Benedict Arnold run George Washington's troops during the American Revolution. You know, it's interesting. Uh, So often during this Trump era, I think about I'm an you know, I'm I'm a history uh, buff, not not a not an esteemed historian. But I do think a lot about how will history remember people and and this era. And it just seems like some of these individuals uh, that are enablers of Trump uh, just don't even remotely think that way in terms of how is this going to look in 10 or 20 years? Yeah, because they have no soul and don't have a deep love for the country. They put self-interest or political power ahead of themselves. I mean, the story of Rudy Giuliani alone will be talked about for ages. It's important to realize that, though, Donald Trump is not really part of the president's club. He's an outlier. And in that way, he'll be remembered. He's going to have his fans, but it's more like Dillinger and Al Capone or Billy the Kid or something. There'll be a kind of folk cause around him. But he's an outlaw and somebody who in the end will be seen as um, an enemy of the U.S. Constitution. So you might sell you some T-shirts in Gatlinburg in Tombstone, Arizona, might keep Trump's image alive and well. But in in the real game of history, which is serious in years to come, Trump and all of his enablers are going to be seen at the on the you know dunghill of, uh, of of U.S. political you know history. Um, let's talk about your book because on Monday, more than 190 countries signed on to a sweeping UN agreement to try to protect the environment. You. Your new book looks at at the history of environmental activism, um, and you write about bipartisan legislation the U.S. previously passed on the environment. You know, a lot of people might not even know that Richard Nixon is the, was the president when the EPA was created. Why has it been so hard to achieve this type of, type of bipartisan recognition of the importance of environmentalism in recent years? Do you think? 
Well, you know, um, Jake, the reason is because, you know, I write about John F. Kennedy, Lyndon and Lady Bird Johnson and Richard Nixon and doing all these extraordinary um, new laws and, you know, things like the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Acts, uh, Endangered Species Act of, of 1973 passed the Senate 92 to nothing. Uh, but we had a movement. It was the people demanding it. I write about the first Earth Day in 1970, and it was musicians like Marvin Gaye writing Mercy Me, the, the you know, ecology, and Andy Warhol ended up doing the series of endangered species. The great painter Robert Rauschenberg did the poster, uh, and the grassroots organization were saying, we want clean air. We want the lead out of gasoline. We want no more smog causing respiratory illness in Los Angeles and New York. We want the Great Lakes clean that we could catch fish there again. We don't want rivers like the Cuyahoga of Ohio or the Rouge in Michigan on fire. It was the people demanding it. And until the public talks about climate change as being the issue, we had a midterm election and it's ranked number five or something. Until we're demanding it of our public servants, uh, we're going to be in these kind of weird climate events, one after the other, wondering what to do and kicking the can down the road. The hero, Jake, right now, to my mind, is California under Gavin Newsom and others. By 2035, they're not going to be selling, um, you know, vehicles that are run on fossil fuels. And our post office is starting to go to electric vehicles. So the movement's there, but we've got to have a Rachel Carson-like figure, somebody who leads us into the promised land of a cleaner and safer, healthier tomorrow and make sure we don't have species vanishing willy-nilly on our, our life watch. Douglas Brinkley, author of the brand new book, Silent Spring Revolution. John F. Kennedy, Rachel Carson, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and the great environmental awakening. Awakening. Thank you so much for joining us. Merry Christmas to you, sir. I'm looking forward to having you on more in the new year. Coming up next, what seems to be Putin's slip of the tongue, plus President Volodymyr Zelensky back in Ukraine, his rallying cry to his country as he nears almost a full year under siege from Russian invaders. Stay with us. Topping our world lead in Russia, it's illegal for anyone to publicly call the brutal invasion of Ukraine a war, punishable by up to 15 years in prison. But last night, Russian President Vladimir Putin did just that. Sources telling CNN that U.S. officials believe it was a slip-up as Russia's relentless war barrels toward the one-year mark. CNN's Will Ripley is in Kiev, Ukraine, where Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky just got back from his trip to D.C. With some good news, the U.S. Congress just passed a massive spending bill that included $45 billion in new aid for Ukraine. Apparently, no time for jet lag for Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. As you can hear, the phones are working, he says. Just back from his whirlwind Washington trip, Zelensky told ambassadors in Kyiv the Biden White House is working on a whopping $45 billion aid package. He says the real work for Ukraine is just beginning. We must sleep less than the enemy, think more than the enemy, risk more effectively than the enemy, and communicate with the world better, he says. The Kremlin's PR machine launching its own propaganda blitz. After publicly calling the 10-month-old conflict a war for the first time Thursday, Russian President Vladimir Putin wants the world to see his war machine firing on all cylinders. Defense Minister Sergei Shoigo in western Russia visiting a Kalishnikov production factory. On the front line, 
overall conditions unchanged. To the south, Russian forces firing artillery across the Dnipro River in Kherson, shelling civilian infrastructure, education, and humanitarian facilities, keeping with the Kremlin playbook. To the east, the Ukrainian military says it's repelling Russian attacks around Bakhmut in the Donbass. The handful still living there describe a living hell as Russia tries to bomb them back to the Stone Age. We have no information. We have no electricity. We don't know what is going on. No electricity, no water, no gas. What could we know? We just hear the explosions and that's all. Power problems even plague the posh capital, Kyiv. Electric supply is still running around 50%, actually an improvement from recent days. That translates to more than 12 hours a day without power for most. They endure darkness and biting cold. Temperatures in the coming days predicted to plummet. Tonight, the big question, did Vladimir Putin mean to break protocol, break the law by calling his carefully crafted, specially military operation what it really is, a war? If uh, he meant to do it, that could mean that Russia is shifting towards a more militaristic stance, could potentially declare martial law, pour even more resources into its military. He's already said he's going to do that, Jake. Or was it simply, as you put it earlier, a Freudian slip, as the U.S. believes? All right, Will Ripley and Keith, thanks so much. It was one of the biggest U.S. Supreme Court decisions in decades, and we're only now starting to see the dire effects from the Dobbs decision. One couple's story shows the pain that comes from severe bans and restrictions on abortion. That's next. Our health leave now, the unintended consequences created by the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade and the move by politically conservative states to enact abortion bans and other severe restrictions. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen introduces us to a couple now that was forced to make some wrenching choices and now have become vocal supporters of abortion rights. Last spring, Jill Hartle took a pregnancy test and was thrilled to find out she was expecting. With a little girl, she and her husband, Matt, named Ivy Grace. Their mama and papa bear instincts kicking in right away. And I immediately felt like a dad and a father. My whole goal now is to protect my family. And Matt would need to protect them. At an ultrasound, when Jill was four months pregnant... Our doctor came in the room and immediately... You knew that something was wrong, and she said her heart isn't what we want it to look like. That ultrasound, and another a month later, found Ivy Grace had a severe and devastating heart defect. South Carolina law gave the Hartles two choices. Carry Ivy Grace to term, and she would die shortly after birth, or subject her to multiple extensive open-heart surgeries, which she might not survive. Jill is a hairdresser and former Ms. South Carolina. Matt, a brewer. They were religious Republicans in a red state. I grew up in a very Christian conservative household. I'm a very faithful woman. Like many parents facing this severe and devastating diagnosis, the Hartles opted to terminate the pregnancy. The best option to protect our daughter from pain and suffering was to send her to heaven. But abortion was not an option in South Carolina. They found a clinic out of state but it had a two-week wait due to an influx of women like Jill. Those two weeks were probably the most torturous two weeks of my entire life. But a logistically nightmare trying to make this happen, figure out how to set this up. All while you're grieving the loss of your child. 
Now they've started the Ivy Grace Project to educate the public and policymakers about fetal anomalies. Often they can't be detected until four or five months into a pregnancy when it's too late in states like South Carolina to have an abortion. It's not fair for the government to tell you what you should or should not do. CNN reached out to the primary Senate sponsor of the state's most recent abortion law. State Senator Larry Groom said, I regret to hear about the Hartle family and of their baby with a heart defect. However, I remain committed to protecting the lives of children from those who would choose to end those lives. As the holidays approach, so does the day their daughter would have been born. The 25th is Christmas. Jill's birthday is the 26th and the due date was the 27th. We just don't want another family to have to experience the pain that we've had to experience. Now, the Hartles say that they don't blame their doctors in South Carolina for not performing the termination. They say they know that the laws were changing quickly last summer and their doctors could conceivably have faced heavy fines. They could have faced prison time. So they don't blame them. The couple says they just want South Carolina legislators to know that many conservative Christians like themselves do not support these harsh abortion bans. Jake. All right. Elizabeth Cohen with a sad and horrifying story. Elizabeth, thank you so much for that. Coming up next, new revelations inside the transcripts just released by the January 6th committee. Why star witness Cassidy Hutchinson used words like disappointed, frustrated, and disgusted to describe her first round of testimony. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the winter wallop pummeling the United States from California to Maine, Deadly wind chills, whiteout snow, hurricane-force winds, and now millions of American Americans are facing life-threatening cold. Plus, a look at the great length some parents are going to to try to find children's pain medications as respiratory viruses surge. And leading this hour, direct and to the point, quote, the central cause of January 6th was one man, former President Donald Trump, whom many others followed, none of the events of January 6th, would have happened without him, unquote. That is how the January 6th Select House Committee, a bipartisan group, summed up the findings of their 845-page report based on more than 1,000 interviews, hundreds of emails, texts, and phone records, all gathered during the year-and-a-half-long investigation into the deadly insurrection. CNN's Paula Reed dives into the revelations from this gargantuan history-making report. The January 6th committee lays the blame for the Capitol attack directly at the feet of former President Donald Trump. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. They broke the glass. Everybody stay down. In an 845-page report released late Thursday, the committee writes, the central cause of January 6th was one man who many others followed. None of the events of January 6th would have happened without him. The report alleges that Trump's decision to falsely declare victory on election night was, quote, premeditated. The key thing to do is to claim victory. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. No, we won. you. Sorry. The report also reveals efforts to get states to overturn Trump's losses. Donald J. Trump of the state of Florida, number of votes, 11. Between the election and the insurrection, Trump or his inner circle engaged in at least 200 acts of public or private outreach to state officials to try to get them to overturn their election results. 
The GOP electors are also on the governor's certificate of ascertainment. I'm not going to get into a political debate. I'm following orders. The investigation also discovered a nearly 23-minute phone call between someone at the White House and John Eastman on the same day the conservative attorney wrote a now infamous memo laying out how Pence could block the certification of the Electoral College vote. State election officials ignored or violated the state law in order to put Vice President Biden over the finish line. We know there was fraud. The call came after Eastman emailed a Trump assistant that he wanted to talk to Trump to update him on our overall strategic thinking. Trump latched on to this theory and used it to press his reluctant vice president in the days leading up to January 6th. Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. The committee is also calling for lawyers. Rudy Giuliani, accompanied by Professor John Eastman. Who tried to overturn the election to be held accountable. Among its other recommendations, barring Trump from ever holding political office and reforming the Electoral Count Act, making it harder to overturn a certified presidential election. We think there's evidence to refer this to DOJ, but they've got to do the prosecution. That's not a legislative function. The committee is expected to release more transcripts in the coming days, which will, of course, be of great interest to defense attorneys and to special counsel Jack Smith, who will be getting much of the evidence gathered in this investigation as he and his team contemplate possible criminal charges for Trump and his associates. All right, Paula Reed, stick around. Reading the transcript of the testimony of former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson provides fascinating insights into two important parts of the Trump insurrection investigation. One is Cassidy Hutchinson's transformation from loyal MAGA foot soldier to whistleblower. During her interview with the committee on February 23rd, she was repeatedly asked about the story she had heard about Trump in the presidential SUV on January 6th, demanding he be taken to the Capitol. Hutchinson, at the advice of her lawyer, Stefan Passantino, continually tells the committee she cannot recall any details about that, even though she can. Quote, I felt this moral struggle, struggle, she later admitted. I was trying so hard to be loyal to the president and to be loyal to her former boss, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and to be loyal to the Trump White House. But in the back of my mind, too, I just kept thinking, like, this is wrong. I don't like who I'm being right now, unquote. In April, Cassidy Hutchinson reads a legal brief filed by the committee and sees excerpts of that February testimony. Quote, I kept reading how I was responding to questions in the I don't recalls and dancing around my responses, completely hedging for Trump and for Mark Meadows, where I would say like I was sticking up for them and saying that like essentially what they did wasn't really that bad. I just had a mental breakdown after that because I just, you know, I was disappointed in myself. I was frustrated with myself. To be blunt, I was kind of disgusted with myself. I became somebody. I never thought that I would become. And it was hard. It was hard to come to terms with then. It's hard to look back on now, unquote. Cassidy Hutchinson's transformation from MAGA foot soldier to courageous whistleblower is now part of history. And members of the committee firmly believe without her testimony, we would not have heard from so many others who ultimately provided valuable facts, including former White House counsel Pat Cipollone. The second major point one can glean from Cassidy Hutchinson's description of her experience with Passantino could provide insights into why so many others in the Trump orbit continued to say, I don't recall when they assuredly did. She sought legal help from Trump world and she got it. 
but just who was her lawyer seeking to protect? Quote, would you mind letting me know where the funding for this is coming from? She asks him, according to her testimony. We're not telling people where funding is coming from right now. Don't worry, we're taking care of you, he responds. Then later, preparing for her testimony in November 2021, Cassidy Hutchinson asks, quote, could we print off a calendar really quick? I want to make sure that I'm getting the dates right with these things. He goes, no, no, no. He says, we're going to downplay your role. You were a secretary. You had an administrative role. The less you remember, the better. She tells him, I had this conversation with Deputy White House Chief of Staff Tony Renato when we got back from the rally that day, and he told me that the president tried to wrap his hands around Secret Service agent Bobby Engel's neck and strangle him because Engel wouldn't take him to the Capitol. Passantino tells her she shouldn't go there. She doesn't need to share that with the committee. Hutchinson tried to get some clarity, asking, okay, well, what's the line that I draw her here? Her lawyer's response, quote, look, the goal with you is to get you in and out. Keep your answers short, sweet, and simple. The less the committee thinks you know, the better. It's going to be painless, and then you're going to be taken care of, unquote. Cassidy Hutchinson says, quote, he specifically told me I don't want you to perjure yourself, but I don't recall isn't perjury, unquote. Keep in mind, all this time, Passantino is also helping to set Cassidy Hutchinson up on job interviews. He says, quote, we're going to get you a really good job in Trump world. You don't need to apply other places. We want to keep you in the family, unquote. So the free legal representation and the job opportunities are what she's getting. And what she's giving is assistance in a cover-up. In her very first interview with the committee in February, she's asked multiple times about that incident in the SUV, which she says at the time she never heard anything about. But then during a break, she tells her attorney, Passantino, Stefan, I'm effed. He responds, don't freak out, you're fine. She insists, no, Stefan, I'm effed. I just lied. He says, you didn't lie. No, Stefan, do you know how many times they just asked me that question? I just lied. Passantino says, they don't know what you know, Cassidy. They don't know that you can recall some of these things. So you saying, I don't recall, is an entirely acceptable response to this, unquote. And the fear of what would happen to her if she did not take his advice was potent, she says in her testimony. Quote, it was almost like I felt like I had Trump looking over my shoulder because I knew in some fashion it would get back to him if I said anything that he would find disloyal. And the prospect of that genuinely scared me. She testifies, I'd seen how vicious they can be, the level they'll go to to tear somebody else down. And why would she feel like Trump was looking over her shoulder? Well, she quotes Passantino telling her, quote, the boss does read transcripts and we want to make sure that like whatever he's reading isn't going to put you in a bad situation. I mean, it all sounds like a mob movie. Before her second interview, she gets a call from an aide to Mark Meadows, who she says said something to the effect of, well, Mark wants me to let you know that he knows you're loyal and he knows you'll do the right thing tomorrow and that you're going to protect him and the boss. He knows that we're all on the same team. We're all a family, unquote. Hutchinson testified that she told her mom, I'm effed. I'm completely indebted to these people, and they will ruin my life, mom, if I do anything that they don't want me to do, unquote. Now, the final straw for Cassidy Hutchinson comes when Pasatino advises her to stop cooperating with the committee. Quote, there's a small element of risk to refusing to cooperate, he says. She tells her lawyer, I don't want to gamble with being held in contempt of Congress, Stefan. If they do prosecute me, I theoretically could go to prison, right? 
He said, well, just keep giving it some thought. We really think this is what's best for you, Cass. Like, this needs to end at some point. And I think it just needs to end now, unquote. And Hutchinson explains it was this moment, quote, in my mind, I thought, this does need to end now, this being our attorney-client relationship, unquote. So when other transcripts are released from other witnesses and you see how many I don't recalls have been offered, keep all this in mind. We should note that in a statement, Passantino says he represented Hutchinson, quote, honorably, ethically, and fully consistent with her sole interests as she communicated them to me, unquote. Our team here at CNN has been working its way through this 845-page report. Let's discuss some of the key takeaways and the pressure campaign on star witness Cassidy Hutchinson. And Evan, this conversation she recalls with her first attorney, Passantino, is it evidence of inducing perjury to say, you can say I don't recall even if you do? Yeah, I mean, it does sound like it. And I think that's one of the things that uh, Cassidy Hutchinson likely would have talked about with the Justice Department when she met with them for an interview and and her her. Her testimony goes beyond just Passantino. What you're hearing there is a, a wider effort, really, to try to keep her from helping this committee get to the bottom of what they were trying to get to the bottom of. And that includes uh, Mark Meadows. If, if Mark Meadows is passing on messages saying, you know, I know tomorrow's going to go well for you, you know, make sure you stay on the team, you know, there are, there are ways for prosecutors to get at exactly what was going on here. If there was a a wider uh, conspiracy to try to make sure she lied to the committee. Yeah, uh, interference. Those are crimes. Yeah. Uh, And, Caitlin, the report alleges that Trump personally, quote, oversaw the scheme to put slates of fake electors in seven states that he lost, despite concerns from his attorneys, expressed concerns that doing so would be against the law. What's the significance of this? Well, Jake, one of the things that you see in that episode, as well as the Cassidy Hutchinson documentation we have now, is there are so many people that were witness to what was going on and so many people that were in touch with the very senior people around Donald Trump, people like uh, Rudy Giuliani. There's a man named Ken Cheesebro who was working as a lawyer uh, for, for Trump, for the campaign. And what happens when the committee goes and digs in, talks to all of those people, hundreds of people, related to the fake electors, they're getting stories where it's not clear who, is in, who has intent, who's knowingly, willfully trying to submit these fake documents. But you know who does know and who is knowingly, willfully taking part in it? It is the people that are orchestrating it. And those are people that are talking to Donald Trump, not just about the use of electors in those states, but how that fits into the broader plan to try and get Mike Pence to stop the transfer of power of the presidency. Paula, Trump's repeatedly claimed he was relying on the advice of his attorneys, the advice of his attorneys and his attacks on the election. The report makes it pretty clear that his, a lot of attorneys were not giving him bad advice. Absolutely. And they argued that this was premeditated. This was always the plan. They present this new evidence, emails from a conservative group urging Trump to rebut the election if he lost. They are also presenting new evidence that the White House was in touch with John Eastman, for example, while he was drafting his now infamous memo about how Pence could try to block the counting of electoral votes. We saw on Monday they presented multiple clips from interviews of White House advisors who were telling them, look, you didn't lose. So even if they tried to argue this, they can point to these other clips. And then, of course, they use these anecdotes like him calling one of his attorneys, Sidney Powell, crazy. When it comes to her allegations about foreign interference. So it's not clear that he needs a criminal defense at this point. He, of course, hasn't been charged. But it's clear 
the committee was trying to preemptively thwart this defense. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't wrong about Sidney Powell. Um, Evan, what does the Justice Department special counsel, Jack Smith, what does he do now that he has all this evidence and transcripts? Well, he doesn't yet. I mean, he, he has this report, and I think the report does raise important new questions, and, and, and it looks like they have additional evidence that the, 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 the Justice Department has been asking for and hasn't received yet. We know that they began the process of turning over some of these transcripts last week, uh, and that is an ongoing process, but I don't think, uh, you know, they have all of them yet. And I think that's the importance for the Justice Department is to get those transcripts to see whether there's something that they don't yet have or, you know, uh, that could identify new crimes that they haven't yet uh, been investigating. And they'll need to compare and contrast, too, right? right? If somebody sat for many, many interviews with the House and they're also talking to the Justice Department... If there's any daylight between what they said to either, I mean, that's something the Justice Department will have to look into. Well, speaking of the Justice Department, I mean, the committee made a very strategic decision to focus on Trump, right? I mean, they could have said this was a conspiracy of several, but they, you know, several thousand people or whatever, several dozen. But they, they, they said this is because of one man. How might that impact the Justice Department, if at all? Yeah, well, Jake, they do put it all together, right? In the same way that the Justice Department is going to have to, too. They're going to look at the rioters, see what the connections are. But I think Paula used the word intent when she was talking earlier. And that is the thing that the committee underlines over and over again, that they're trying to talk to people about intent. And one of the things, you know, we've covered many justice investigations. They take time, often five years, as much as five years. But this was within two years of the day of the riot They're preserving memories of people, and every single person that agreed to speak to the House Select Committee, they are going to have to speak to the Justice Department, too, if the Justice Department wants to talk to them. There's no arguing against sitting for the Justice Department if you've already spilled the beans to the House. Uh, And so now the Justice Department has tools at hand that they can push further if they want to, if they see fit. And there are certain episodes that the committee couldn't really necessarily get to the bottom of the, the situation in the presidential SUV. They talked to Cassidy Hutchinson. Those are the sorts of things that I would expect the Justice Department to really want to flesh out now. Uh, and, and Paula, one of the headlines from the report is that the committee is recommending that Trump be prevented from ever holding public office again. How does that even work? I'm not sure it does. It's a splashy headline, certainly, but it's not clear that there's a viable path. In the report, they point to the section of the Constitution that says that those engaged in insurrection or have given aid or comfort to our enemies can be barred from holding office. But it's not clear that there's actually a process to do that or if it even applies to presidents. So we also heard the vice chairwoman, Liz Cheney, talk about this on Monday as well. That's really a message to voters. It's not clear that there's any viable mechanism to carry that out. Where do, we, where do we go from here? I mean, obviously, Jack Smith, the special counsel, he's going to do something. We have no idea when. We it don't. could be in five years. It could be in 10 years, special counsels. I mean, Durham still has his probe <laughs> going. Right? I mean, like, these probes, we'll remind us. These probes go on forever and ever and ever. We have, I mean, this, this could, we could be talking about serious criminal charges in a month or in 10 years or never. Right. Well, I mean, I think the important thing, there's two important decisions for the Justice Department we often talk about, right? There's a decision of whether you can find prosecutable crimes here. Second is a policy decision. Is it in the interest of the country? Is it in the interest of justice to bring charges like this? And I think one of the important things, and I think if you talk to people around the former president, one of their worries is that this committee has had an impact. It has made the, the second decision, the policy decision, a lot more accessible for for DOJ. It means that it is much more likely that they'll cross that bridge that a lot of people said, oh, my God, you know, they'll never do it. I think it makes it a lot more possible for them to do it because 
this committee has really illuminated a lot of things that a lot of Americans maybe had put out of their minds from that terrible day on January 6, 2000. And if they're going to do it, the attorney general would like them to do it sooner rather than later. Right. When he announced the special counsel, one of the things he talked about is that this will not delay the work. There is a concern about how long these investigations, both the investigation into possible mishandling of classified information at Mar-a-Lago and January 6, how far this could go into the presidential election cycle yeah. now that Trump has announced, because they have gone to such lengths to try to paint this as an apolitical objective investigation. And some of the president's, former president's attorneys argue that these recommendations, this report, doesn't help that. All right, thanks one and all. Really appreciate it. Following our other top story, wind, snow, and ice now slamming the Northeast as temperatures plummet to dangerous levels across the U.S. Where the winter wallop is headed next. Stay with us. International lead new images show the dangers of this winter weather stretching coast to coast. This is the aftermath of 50, 50, 50 cars involved in crashes along the Ohio Turnpike. This is in northern Ohio. Authorities tell us at least one person was killed. In Buffalo, New York, whiteout conditions and hurricane force winds forced officials to cancel all flights at the airport. The city has shut down all roads to non-emergency vehicles. Along the coast of New England, severe flooding is causing problems. It will be even more problematic when temperatures suddenly plunge this evening. Further south, high winds are also problematic. At D.C.'s Reagan National Airport, a plane had to abort its landing just a few feet from the runway. Ground stops have been issued at airports coast to coast with more than 4,900 flights canceled in the U.S. so far today. And FedEx is warning about possible delivery delays due to the weather. The storm also bringing in Arctic air that will make this the coldest Christmas in roughly 40 years in the Plain States in the Midwest. Right now, the entire state of Texas, Texas is seeing temperatures below freezing. Let's start with CNN's Polo Sandoval, who's in Buffalo, New York, where blizzard conditions are hammering the area with hurricane force winds. And Polo, you've been seeing whiteout conditions for hours now. It's right behind me, Jake. You know, I've covered hurricanes. I've covered snowstorms. I can personally tell you this particular storm, it is the worst of both worlds. You're talking the frigid temperatures, roughly 10 degrees here in Buffalo, but a wind chill in the sub-zero. Uh, and combined with these whipping winds that have just been relentless all day, it's been kicking up the snow that's fallen already hours ago. So you have this sort of ground blizzard effect here. This really wasn't packing a whole lot of snow, but it's that wind that keeps kip, kicking it up that has resulted in some of these uh, just uh, just treacherous conditions. Now, when it comes to these winds here, the National Weather Service here in Buffalo confirming one uh, wind measurement of roughly 79 miles an hour, a wind gust of 79 miles an hour in the Buffalo area earlier today. That surpasses that of a historic blizzard in 1977. So that certainly confirms what we've been hearing from officials. This is an extraordinary storm, even for Western New York. Uh, largely, we have seen very few people on the streets, but nonetheless, uh, authorities here, I including authorities here in Erie County, do say that they continue to see people violating what is a travel ban that's been in place since 9.30 this morning and will be in place indefinitely as these conditions will continue through the evening, tonight, and then tomorrow these winds will continue as well. But for now, uh, authorities here, Jake, the big recommendation is to stay at home. In fact, that's the safest place. Even with thousands of people currently losing power in and around the Buffalo area, authorities here saying your house, even if it's 45 degrees, wearing multiple layers, it's still much safer than being stuck on the side of the road with sub-zero wind chills. Absolutely. Polo Sandoval in Buffalo, New York. Thank you. Sinan's Omar Jimenez is at Chicago's O'Hare Airport, where it's one of the busiest travel days of the year. Omar, are people able to get out? Are flights leaving? 
Well, Jake, not at the rate that people would like at this point. And just in the last moments, we have learned we have now crossed more than 5,000 cancellations across the United States, according to data from FlightAware. More than 5,000. And that's on top of the almost 8,000 delays we have seen in flights across the country, all of it happening just two days before Christmas, where everybody, at the very least, is trying to either get somewhere warm or close to family members, because we are here at O'Hare, where the airport has announced more than 500 cancellations on its own here, not to mention uh, the average arrival times of planes coming in is delayed by about 30 minutes, which, when you think about the connections, affects those and could potentially leave people stranded. We talked to two passengers a little bit earlier today who had their flight canceled tonight with their entire family. They were going to go all the way to New Zealand and now won't be able to get out for another two days. Take a listen to some of how they are dealing with these cancellations. We hopped on an earlier flight thinking that we were going to you know, get in, and, and even the, the pilot on the way out was saying, you know, this is one of the last flights into Chicago from Austin, yeah. so we felt really lucky, and then, you know, came to find out that everything had gotten delayed, now we're going through L.A., yeah. but I, I think it's going to be fine. It's I think been it's changing just... by the minute. And, and that's the thing, all these people that you're talking to are trying to figure out what is changing with our flights. Are they delayed? Is it canceled? Am I going to have to get a hotel? We were also downstairs here at O'Hare, a long line of people trying to figure out where their baggage is because they might check in, their flight gets canceled, they don't know if they can get their bags. And so all of these factors coming into play when that demand to at least get home or to other places is as high as really it would ever be over the course of a year, Jake. Omar Jimenez at Chicago's O'Hare, thank you so much. The big question, how long is this going to last? CNN meteorologist Derek Van Dam's in Atlanta where it feels like two degrees outside and they're about to have the coldest Christmas Eve on record. Derek? Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of cities in the south that are just impacted by this cold. In fact, they're going to stay below freezing for at least 48 hours. Birmingham to Jackson, Mississippi to here in Atlanta as well. And, uh, you know, it's difficult to explain and show you what cold is like other than being bundled up, seeing my breath. But went to go take a drink out of my water, completely frozen. So that's not an option. We've got my handy thermometer. It is well below freezing here, as Jake was just saying. But I think this is quite impactful. This was a wet time towel a few hours ago completely rock solid and if that gives you any indication of what the roads are like any water that was on the ground is now completely frozen obviously that's a concern get to my graphics want to show you just how cold it is in atlanta it dropped a whopping 35 degrees in eight hours that is incredible we've got two more days of temperatures below freezing so if you lose electricity like the 1.2 million customers across the eastern seaboard you're going to have trouble heating your home right unless you've got gas um uh it's just incredible to see these numbers in Memphis. The mayor and the electrical company, they're urging residents to turn off all unnecessary appliances, conserve power because there's so much demand on the energy grid as we speak. There's the location of this Arctic front, right? The emperor from the north just colliding into the east coast right now. I'm going to zoom into a couple of key locations because I want you to see that Interstate 95 corridor. Uh, largely dry in New York. You did have your first snow of the year, but look at Boston, still in rain. And then where we saw the live shot with Polo a few minutes ago, wow, whiteout conditions. That is because the wind direction is coming basically parallel with Lake Erie 
as we speak. So it's allowing for that to pick up the moisture from the relatively warm lake waters and deposit it in the form of heavy snow bands right where he's located. Look at the millions under these high wind warnings gusting to near category one strength while this cold front presses through. You can see some of the current wind gusts that uh, are ongoing for some of the major east coast cities. And those are not typos, Jake. We're talking about wind gusts. Uh, potentially over 70 miles per hour for some of these locations. Highest snowfall totals, downwind from all the lakes, the Great Lakes, getting hammered right now as we speak. Jake? All right, Derek Van Dam in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you so much. It's hoovering around, it's hovering around freezing, even along the U.S.-Mexican border where thousands of migrants are trapped in legal limbo as they wait for the Supreme Court to weigh in. That's next. In our national lead, the severe winter storm is also hitting El Paso, Texas, where migrants unable to get into the already overcrowded shelters are sleeping on sidewalks in below freezing temperatures. This as Title 42, the Trump era pandemic policy, which allows border officials to expel migrants either back to their home countries or into Mexico, is still in effect. CNN's Camila Bernal is live for us from El Paso, Texas, where temperatures will get down to about 20 degrees tonight. Camilla, what's happening with these migrants who cannot get into shelters? What are they supposed to do? Well, try to figure it out, Jake. It is very difficult for them. And essentially, the only thing they can do is try to grab as many blankets as possible. You'll see all of those blankets currently folded up against the wall. Some of them are being used right now. But what they do is they just grab as many of these blankets as they can And then they lay on the sidewalk and they're one next to the other, next to the other. We were here very early this morning when it was 17, 18 degrees and they were using cardboard boxes to block the wind because the wind was also picking up a lot over those early morning hours, those critical times when the temperatures were so, so low. It is dangerously low. Officials here say that they are at capacity, specifically at this shelter, at this church. They have about 130 people that are allowed to be in there in terms of capacity. But last night they were able to fit about 200 people. They have to turn people away because they just don't have any room. The problem is that a lot of the people here who have to sleep here outside at night, they don't have the proper documentation from Border Patrol. A lot of them don't want to go through that process, so they're not allowed in the city shelters. The convention center, there are schools that are open, but because they don't have that paperwork, they're not allowed in those city-run shelters because of state and federal laws. So instead, This is where they are, and this is where they will be tonight as well, Jake. We're still waiting to see whether the U.S. Supreme Court is going to side with the Biden administration to end Title 42 on Tuesday. Are are border cities such as El Paso preparing for that? Absolutely. And El Paso even declaring a state of emergency because local officials here say it is not right to see so many people on the streets. They say, look, not only are they coming and they're coming in high numbers, but they're also not having anywhere to go. So that is why they decided to activate uh, that state of emergency, which allows them to bring in state resources. That means emergency management teams that are walking around trying to get people to go to those Border Patrol stations so that they can go through the process and then receive help from the city. There is a city bus here that we saw overnight and is still here. And that allowed some of these migrants to jump on the bus just to warm up overnight. I talked to one of these migrants who told me, look, I was telling my friends, get on the bus because you're going to freeze 
to death, but a lot of them are just so scared. And they are going to go through this because they want to be in this country. Despite the very low temperatures, they want a future in the U.S. and they're willing to do whatever it takes to stay here, Jake. All right, Camilla Bernal in El Paso, Texas. Thank you so much. Still ahead, growing concerns that the Iranian regime is going to take its brutality to a whole new level in order to try to discourage protests. Stay with us. Turning to our world lead, fears of outrageous new brutality in Iran. Authorities there are trying to clamp down after months of anti-government protests sparked by the death of a woman detained by Iran's so-called morality police for allegedly not wearing her head covering properly. As CNN's Nima Albaga reports, Iran appears to be planning to execute dozens of protesters, including some prominent athletes, and hoping that the world won't notice. My son has been sentenced to execution. Mohammed Gobadlu is only 22. My son is innocent. For the love of God, help him. Desperate families in Iran, risking it all with a plea to the world to save their loved ones from execution. Fearing that detainees in Iran are said to face a wave of executions in an accelerated judicial process, while holiday celebrations have the world's attention elsewhere. In collaboration with Iranian activist group 1500 Tasvir, we work to verify court documents which show that dozens of Iranians, including high-profile Iranian athletes, face execution. We also work to verify video pleas like this one, from this 81-year-old mother of one of the detainees. We don't know his whereabouts, no information about him, nor do we even know where he is. This document from inside the Asfahan Regional Court shows that at least 10 people have been charged with muharaba, war against God, spreading corruption on earth and other charges, all which carry the possibility of the death penalty. Through obtaining and verifying court documents and witness testimony, we have evidence which supports a rushed-through judicial process, defendants having court-appointed counsel forced on them, Many defendants having their right to appeal refused. Some defendants faced with charges which could carry the death sentence being handed down in a single sitting. Terrified Iranian families believe that while the world is busy celebrating the holiday season, busy with their families, that they in Iran face imminent execution of their loved ones. CNN has confirmed that Iranian footballer Amir Nasr Azadani is among those facing execution. Here he is training ahead of match day. Now, he's on death row waiting. This is social media video from the night of his arrest. CNN made contact with someone close to Nasr Azadani inside Iran. We are not disclosing their identity. They told us that in the days after his arrest, they were unable to get word from him or about him from authorities, even as the Iranian authorities denied his arrest. It was one month and 19 days. I think maybe even perhaps longer since the security forces came and wanted to see Amir's home. And despite being told he would be freed. They would tell us in the first few weeks that they will release Amir and that Amir will be released by the end of the week. Then came a charge of the crime of Muharaba, war against God, which Nasr Azadani and nine other people have been accused of. 
relating to involvement in the killing of two Basiji militia operatives and one policeman during protests in late November, a charge they deny. Now sources close to Nasser Azadani say he and four others have had their charges upgraded by the Asfahan court to Bari, a charge punishable only by execution. There's more. In the regional court of Khazistan, west of Asfahan, CNN has confirmed with 1500 Tasvir through court documents that 23 more people have been charged with the same crime, punishable by death. We're redacting their names out of fears for their safety. There is still more. In Karaj, CNN and 1500 Tasvir have confirmed that at least five more Iranians are facing execution, including 21-year-old Iranian Kurdish karate champion Mohammad Mahdi Karami, whose parents have also gone public with their plea. Please, I beg you to please lift the execution order from my son's life. In messages shared with CNN, his family say Karimi was not only sentenced to death, but is also being tortured in prison. In another message shared with CNN, they said Karimi was somehow in good spirits, but physically damaged, having suffered torture on his head and body. Including those whose families recorded public pleas for help. That brings the total of those verified by CNN as facing execution to at least 43. And that's in addition to the two executed by Iran amid the excitement of the World Cup. Just this week, 27-year-old Iranian Kurdish rapper Saman Yassin attempted suicide whilst in detention, according to a source from the prison. Yassin tried to end his life, sources say, with pills. After enduring extreme psychological torture in the harsh prison conditions in northern Iran. As much of the world gets absorbed with their festivities, Iranian families have one message. Please save them. For the love of God, save my sons. We reached out to Iranian authorities for a response and did not receive any comment. We also shared our findings with the U.S. State Department, who, based on what we have found said that they strongly denounce the charges handed down by Iranian authorities to these Iranians. Jake? Nima Albagar, thank you for that harrowing report. Coming up, imagine being a parent with a sick child and you cannot find the appropriate pain medication anywhere. That's the reality for so many parents across the country. Stay with us. Our health lead now, the latest CDC report on this flu season, which started in early October, estimates that at least 18 million people in the U.S. have gotten the flu, 190,000 required hospitalization, and 12,000 have died from the flu. And as CNN's Athena Jones reports for us now, for parents of sick children, this misery is compounded by a shortfall of children's medicines. It's pretty brutal for all of us. Melissa Halfon's 18-month-old twins are teething, a painful process. We just had an incident a few days ago where um, one of them didn't eat for three days because he had so much teething pain. Lately, the Brooklyn mother has struggled to find medicines to treat her boys, Walt and Henry, who generally fall ill at the same time. Every drugstore within walking distance of me is totally bare. My husband did have to drive all the way across Brooklyn. As communities nearly everywhere battle a surge in respiratory illnesses like the flu, COVID-19 and RSV, which can be particularly dangerous for young children, increased demand is driving a shortfall across the country of prescription and over-the-counter medicines for children. The result? Empty shelves. 
and limits on the amount of medicine you can buy at CVS, Walgreens, and Rite Aid, leaving parents and pharmacists frustrated and concerned. <coughs> From Reno, Nevada. They get really bad fevers, our kids, so I was pretty, pretty scared. Nowhere over here, they didn't have anything in stock, so I had to drive 30 minutes to Carson to find some. To Los Angeles. Really, really hard to order Tylenol, generic brand, ibuprofen, generic brand, cough syrup, especially for kids. How are you? To Spartanburg, South Carolina, where children's Tamiflu is out of stock. There's not a delivery date to my wholesaler, which is in North Carolina, so, and they can't, they're telling me they can't get it from the manufacturer. At Cherry's Pharmacy in Manhattan. This is absolutely extraordinary. Now, even alternatives to liquid medicines, like chewables and suppositories, are unavailable. It really is a huge problem in in our community and across the country. Sales of children's medications to treat pain and fever are up 65 percent from this time last year, according to the Consumer Healthcare Products Association. And manufacturers don't have a timeline for when supply may catch up with demand. Pharmacist Charles Tabusharani is trying to make the best of a bad situation. So our shelves where we normally stock Tylenol, Motrin, Advil are completely empty. So I just substituted what is supposed to be there with toys to give it a little scenery. But it it is sad that these shelves have been empty for more than six weeks. As for Halfon and her family... It's frustrating and it's scary. First, we couldn't feed our children because of the infant formula shortage. And now we're facing just another challenge with being able to take basic care of them. Now, manufacturers say they're working around the clock to try to get more medicine to store shelves. In the meantime, pharmacists like the one we spoke to in Manhattan, they're compounding or custom making some medicines. For instance, ibuprofen in suppository form, so it can be used for children. Out on Long Island, a doctor said that parents are getting used to running around to five or six different places to try to find the medicine they need. And this doctor says they're trying to think outside of the box. So going to like a 7-Eleven or a grocery store or a bodega instead of one of these big box pharmacies. And that family in Brooklyn that we spoke to, they say they're trying to stretch out the two bottles uh, that, that that woman's husband was able to find for as long as they can. And so they're going to think really hard and thoughtfully uh, use things like cold compresses, tender loving care. She said everything she could think of to be able to to treat their children beforehand before uh, resorting to the medicine. Thank All right, you. Athena Jones, thank you so much. Coming up in the Situation Room, where the massive winter storm is heading next. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead. CNN, you can download The Lead podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Wishing you Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, and a Happy New Year. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.